Let's pray together. Father, we come here to praise you. We come to praise you for your word. Through it, we confess that we have everything that we need. Everything that we need for life and for godliness. And so we pray that you will indeed give us everything that we need today. Give us help. Comfort us. Correct us. Cause us to endure. Make us like your son, Jesus. We do pray that you'll speak to us today through your word. Conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter 1. We will spend our time there this morning. I want to tell you a story about a pastor from Romania, a guy named Joseph Sohn. He pastored in the late 70s and the early 80s, and he pastored under the communist regime. And pastoring there in the communist regime meant that he had to pastor faithfully under extreme hostility from the communists. I read a story in John Piper's timeless classic, Desiring God, and Piper recounts Zone's reflections about pastoring in this context of intense persecution. Zone writes, suffering and martyrdom have to be seen as part of God's plans. They are his instruments by which he achieves his purposes in history and by which he will accomplish his final purpose with man. Pastor Joseph goes on in this book to tell a story about an unnamed man. We'll call him Victor. And Victor was a a higher-up manager in a factory in Romania. And he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And after he was baptized and he publicly proclaimed and identified himself with Jesus, they formed, the government formed a major interrogation with him. And they informed him, you're going to be interrogated, and you only have five minutes to defend yourself. Just five minutes. So Pastor Yosef advised Victor, he said, don't defend yourself. Instead, tell them about who you were. Tell them about who Jesus is, and tell them about what Jesus has done for you. Let them know your hope. Pastor Yosef reports that Victor, during this interrogation, gave a faithful testimony to the work of Jesus Christ in his life. And as a result of this, because he wouldn't recant, they demoted him. He lost half of his salary overnight. But because he had been such a faithful witness and had stood strongly before this persecution, Victor reported that friend after friend and coworker after coworker came to him and would pull him aside secretly so that no one would see them talking to him and would say, can you tell me more about Jesus? Can you tell me the address of the church where you meet because I want to come? Do you, Victor, have a Bible that I could read? Maybe you could read it with me and tell me about Jesus. Victor had suffered this persecution with such joy and with such faithfulness that all around him saw that his faith was genuine. This sermon is titled, Hope for Dark Times. Hope for Dark Times. And 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 7, teaches that believers should rejoice in suffering. Because God uses suffering to make their faith genuine. 
God uses suffering to make their faith genuine. Peter wrote this letter to encourage a group of Christians in an area called Asia Minor. This is where modern-day Turkey is at present. And Christians in these regions, they were, they were enduring a local persecution and hostility there in their cities for their faith in Jesus. 1 Peter 4, verse 7 calls their trial a fiery trial. And they found hostility at every corner. They found it from family. They found it from friends and co-workers and neighbors. And their life and their livelihood were under constant threat. We can imagine the potential suffering that they faced. They might have been interrogated by employers or treated harshly, perhaps fired from their jobs. They were not invited to relatives' weddings and shunned socially. They might have even gotten visits from officials with threats and really tough questions. And to some of us, this should sound familiar. Society is increasingly opposed and hostile to Christianity today. And this very same hostility is beginning to show itself in our workplaces and in our families and in our neighborhoods and even on our media. And many of us sitting in this room today are facing this hostility daily and directly. There's others of us in this room that are experiencing another kind of suffering. The kind of suffering that comes from living in a broken world. Illness, cancer, pain, loss and grief. Many of us have severe relational difficulty in our lives. Others of us are facing vocational instability. Many of us are lonely or severely anxious. Perhaps we're angry or filled with shame. The truth is that all of us feel the weight of this broken world, don't we? We feel it on a daily basis. And a number of us in this room are in the heat of difficulty at this very present moment. So whether our suffering is from persecution or it's from the brokenness of the world, it forces us to ask the question, if life is this difficult, and if it's so short and it's so fragile, is living a life that honors God worth it? Is living life that honors God worth it? Well, Peter in this passage tells us, yes. Peter knew that the believers in the hostile environment there in Asia Minor, they needed answers. And Peter wanted to give them hope. And he wanted to strengthen their faith. And he wanted to ensure that they would remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of this fiery trial. So in 1 Peter 1, 1 to 5, we're going to march through the text. And we're going to see in 1 Peter 1, 1 to 5 that they should praise God for a secure faith. Praise God for a secure faith. Now I'm going to march through these first five verses quickly because I want to get to verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 1 with me together. The word of God says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Notice that Peter calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. By calling them elect, Peter is reminding them that they belong. 
that God, since eternity past, has chosen them and God has set their love on them. They belong to God. They are not citizens of this world. They are instead citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But there's this temptation for them to define their reality by what they experience in the world. He calls them exiles of the dispersion. In the world, they do not belong. They're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but it's as if they've been, for a time, they're not in heaven, so they're on the earth, and they are dispersed about the earth, and they are away from the place that they truly belong. And so like Abraham and like Jesus, they're just refugees, and they're just pilgrims who are passing through this world until their real home comes. They're passing this world until the new Jerusalem comes. Don't we all need this reminder? We don't belong to this world. This is not our home. All too often we pretend like this is our home, but we are dispersed. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and we are destined for another place. We're destined for a greater place, heaven, what we call the new heavens and the new earth. Let's look at 1 Peter 1, 2 together. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So what he's telling them is that their status in this world is not accidental. They are there as elect exiles by the definite plan in the providence of God. This word here, sanctification, just means to be set apart. And Peter tells us that they have been set apart for a purpose. And what is that purpose? Their purpose is to give their lives in, obese, in obedience to Jesus Christ. And their purpose is to receive the forgiveness that Jesus has procured for them with his blood-bought sacrifice. And then he tells them that God is eager to multiply his grace, and to multiply his peace to them. He will multiply it. Do you doubt in your suffering and in your difficulty that God will multiply his grace and that God will multiply his peace to you? Here Peter says he'll do it. He offers this blessing. Romans 8 says that God freely gave his own son. He gave everything he had to give. He says, how will he freely not also give us all things? God secured salvation. And God sent Jesus to the cross and raised him from the dead. Not only that he might save us, but so that his peace and his grace could flow to us forever. He will multiply his peace and grace to us. Let's look at 1 verse 3. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here Peter begins with this high optimism. He says, blessed be God. He's saying to them, you might be suffering and your life might be difficult. But your secure faith that God has given you is always a reason to stop and praise God. The suffering does not undo our praise. Peter is hinting at them, a life that honors God is worth it. Then he continues in 1 verse 3, according to his great mercy. 
Don't miss that. Why did God save us? His mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the optimism continues, doesn't it? Hope is alive. He says Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Hope itself is a living person. And because Jesus is alive and because God has granted the new birth, what we just symbolize in this baptism, and God has given them new hearts and granted them the gifts of faith and granted them the gifts of forgiveness and granted them the gift of eternal life, they can rejoice that their salvation is secure. How did God secure this salvation? Note that he says, through Jesus' resurrection. Romans 4 verse 25 says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Jesus' resurrection proves that salvation is secure. The work is finished. The gift of salvation has been given. It can't be taken back. It can't be undone. And God is going to finish this work of salvation by resurrecting every believer from the dead at the end of time, just as he resurrected Jesus. And then Peter's optimism, it continues in verse 4. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So the goal of God's salvation is to give believers the inheritance of eternal life in heaven. The end of history. God's going to renew the earth. And he's going to bring the new Jerusalem down. And he's going to come down with the new Jerusalem so that he might dwell with his people forever. And notice how Peter describes this inheritance that awaits us. He first says that it's, our inheritance is imperishable. Imperishable. Like Jesus it's never going to die. Heaven will last forever. It will never end. And then he says our inheritance is undefiled. It cannot be corrupted by sin. It cannot be tainted by the brokenness of this world. Whatever you're suffering today, whatever is your greatest cause of sorrow and anxiety, it will not touch you in heaven. It will come to an end. And there will be an end to all suffering, and there will never be suffering or corruption or brokenness again. Heaven will be perfect. And so heaven is imperishable, and it's undefiled, but he also says it's unfading. Think about the flowers you plant in your gardens year after year, and every year they die, and they fade away, and you have to plant new ones or fertilize them and resurrect them and bring them back to life. But the inheritance of God's people will never fade. In fact, it will only grow more and more glorious over time, over time, eternally. And now in verse 5, Peter's optimism, it looks towards the future. He says, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? This secure salvation, he says, it's ready, it's prepared, it is waiting. And then he tells us that they're under God's constant protection. Think, they are exiles. They feel like they do not belong. They feel like their life and livelihood is at threat. 
And he says, you're being guarded by God's power. You are under God's constant protection. We all pretend like we are the ones who maintain our faith. But notice that Peter here, he pulls back the curtain for us. He says we're guarded by God's power. What beautiful assurance this is. God gives to us the faith that he requires. Verse 3 says he caused us to be born again. He gave the new birth. It says we are elect. God began by pursuing us in eternity past. And that is all the reason to have security and hope. It allows us to have a living hope that is sure and certain. But this is also a call to believe. It is a call to believe that God will save us in the future. It's a call to want this glorious inheritance. And if we want this glorious inheritance, we have to repent of our sins. And we must put our faith in the Lord Jesus to save us from our sins and to forgive us. And then we have to do that every day on. We have to faithfully continue every day believing on the Lord Jesus, believing that he died for our sins, believing that he rose from the dead, and believing that he will bring the kingdom of heaven for us. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists. And then the important part. And that he rewards those who seek him. See, it's not enough to just believe that God exists. Even the demons believe and tremble. God rewards those who seek him by faith. God rewards those who surrender their life and trust to the Lord Jesus. If you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus and experienced the great joy of salvation, I want to encourage you and challenge you that today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. There is no heaven without Jesus. And without Jesus, there's no neutral either. The only other option is the eternal, forever condemnation of hell. And hell is unfading too. It'll be unfading fire and unrelenting judgment. And it says that the worm will never die there. We don't want that for you. We want you to trust in Jesus. We want you to have the joy of this secure inheritance. I'm going to challenge you to choose life today. Surrender yourself to the resurrected Lord Jesus. Now I want to turn our attention back to this idea of the inheritance of heaven. You know, I think one of the closest approximations we have of what heaven will be like on earth today is the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. Think about the opening ceremonies. All the nations are streaming through, nation by nation, to great glory and applause. And think how all the nations that are together there, there's this brief moment of peace between all the nations, even if it's just for an hour. And then at the end of that ceremony, whatever nation is hosting the Olympics, their history is retold, and it's retold with this great beauty and artistry and glory. And then usually, you know, in the middle of the stadium or at the end of the stadium, there's just giant torch, and it's burning bright, and it's giving light to all who are there in the stadium. Yet despite the, the beauty and the wonder of the Olympics, we know that even the Olympics are marred 
by the brokenness and the corruption of this world. News stories are filled with shoddy building projects, with corruption from athletes and officials, with whitewashed histories that make us feel sick. But think about this. If the Olympics, something so broken and defiled, can be so beautiful and can inspire us so, imagine how much more beautiful and how much more inspiring heaven is. Heaven is unfading and glorious and undefiled. Heaven's going to include the nations streaming to worship Jesus. In our lives, they're going to be filled with meaningful work and with meaningful fellowship and relationships and meaningful activity as we seek to transform the new heavens and the new earth. We need to, when we imagine heaven, we need to disabuse ourselves of this idea that it's just going to be pie in the sky, singing choruses forever to Jesus. We are going to sing praises to Jesus. We are going to want to do that. We will be occupied with the wonder of God. But we need to remember that heaven's going to come down to earth, that God's going to renew the earth. Heaven's going to be physical, and we're not only going to be occupied with the wonder of God, we're going to be occupied with the work of God. And it's going to be unspoiled. It's going to be uncorrupted. And it's going to be unending. And you know what will be absent? That suffering and that difficulty you're experiencing, you are experiencing today, it's not going to be there. And so when we think about heaven, we need to discipline ourselves to let the Bible shape our imagination of heaven. We need to give ourselves to reading the great passages at the end of Isaiah, at the end of Revelation, and First and Second Thessalonians, and in Matthew, and the Gospels, and Jesus' teaching. And we need to let the Bible shape and conform our imagination of what heaven is. Now, many of us in this room... If we're honest, we're a little just too preoccupied and busy with this world to really sit and imagine what heaven is. Others of us in this room are just a little cynical about heaven, aren't we? We feel like thinking about heaven and imagining heaven and all its wonders is just misplaced optimism. Well, it's not. Heaven is real. It's genuine. We are told in verse 5, it is ready to be revealed and so we need to reverse course and we need to give ourselves and give our minds and give our hearts to the scriptures so that they might form hope in us we need hope in this broken world and peter's optimism is not misplaced here he tells us that faith hebrews 11 verse 1 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen Let's be assured of what we hope for. Let's be convicted that heaven is real and genuine. And then we'll be convinced that whatever we're suffering, whatever we're going through, because heaven is coming, then in this life, a life that honors God is worth it. We are just like Abraham. We are looking for a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so despite the fiery trial, there is great and genuine reason for praising God. And there is genuine reason for us to continue, for us to not give up, for us to forge ahead. A life that honors God is worth it. 
Let's continue to verses 6 and 7. Peter addresses their suffering directly here. In verses 1 to 5, we saw that God called, or Peter called them to praise God for a secure faith. And now in verses 6 to 7, he's going to call them to rejoice in God for a tested faith. Rejoice in God for a tested faith. Look at verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The main idea in verses 6 to 7 is rejoicing. And the cause of this rejoicing is just described as in this, which should lead us to ask the question, what is in this? Well, I think in this is just the salvation, the secure salvation that Peter has just finished describing in verses 3 to 5. We rejoice because of this salvation that God has given. And this future hope of salvation should produce in us a, a present and an abiding joy. It should produce in us the kind of joy that's persistent and that's permanent and that's profound, that, dwell, that goes uh, deep into us. It's a joy that persists despite the fiery trials that we might be under. And so now in verses 6 to 7, Peter's going to turn, and he's going to give us a little bit of a theology of suffering. He's going to give us the ABCs of suffering. He's going to help us understand what suffering is and its purpose and help us to understand how it does not disrupt our joy. Look at verse 6 where A, he tells us, the suffering is provisional. Suffering is provisional. He says, though now for a little while. The though here is essential to rightly understanding the biblical view of suffering. It's not permanent. Suffering may last our entire lifetime. But that difficulty is brief when compared with the eternal glory that awaits us. Recall from verse 5, that salvation, that future inheritance is ready to be revealed. It's waiting. And so whatever present ordeal these believers are going through, and whatever present ordeal you are going through, this is a reminder that it is insignificant in comparison with the weight of eternal glory. Now, some of you, I know your situations. Some of you are in a situation that's so tough and so difficult right now that it virtually possesses you. The pain continues. The grief, it endures. The conflict ensues. The boss keeps pressing. And I want to encourage you to pray. Beseech your God to relieve you from this suffering. He reigns over all of our suffering. He is the God who is sovereign. And he is not sitting back, paying it, not paying attention. He is paying attention. Pray that he'll relieve you from these. And at times, he will answer those prayers. But as you pray, and as you wait for God to give you relief, whether it's now or at the time of future revelation, Remember that God is telling you that it's not going to be forever. God is in the business of redeeming lives. He will 
with absolute certainty redeem you from the fiery pit. So a life that suffers for God is worth it. Next, Peter teaches that B, suffering, is purposeful. Notice he uses this language. He calls it if necessary. So we acknowledge that suffering can flow from the brokenness of this world. But we also need to remember that suffering is not a good in and of itself. It's only good when it's a tool in God's hands. And so here, Peter reminds them that suffering has purpose. It is a necessary tool from the guiding hand of God. Flip over to 1 Peter 4, verse 19. There's a passage here that gives us a little perspective on the necessity of suffering. Look down at 1 Peter 4, verse 19. It says, Therefore, those also who suffer, and note this phrase, according to the will of God, I would underline that, shall entrust their souls, I would circle entrust a couple times, to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, this is striking. You can turn back to chapter 1. Suffering is the will of God for believers. And so if he doesn't answer that prayer, what is our response? Well, our job is to trust that God, in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite love for us, in his care for us, that he is using that suffering as a necessary tool to make us better to prepare us for this inheritance, to make us true citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He is using suffering to make us like Jesus. And so our job's not really to ask the why questions. Often God does not answer that question. Usually he does not. Instead, our job is to entrust ourselves to him. We want to submit ourselves to God's will. We want to remember what 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 says. It says, cast your anxieties on him. But it gives us this beautiful phrase at the bottom of 1 Peter 5, 7 of why we should cast our anxieties on him. It says, because he cares for you. We need to not forget in the midst of our suffering that God cares for us. He is working in our lives. C, suffering is painful. Suffering is painful. He says in verse 6, back in chapter 1, you have been grieved. This word could uh, be translated distress. And so the word describes all variety of human difficulty, whether it's physical difficulty or it's mental difficulty or it's emotional difficulty. But just notice here that the word of God is calling your suffering grievous. He hates it. It grieves him. Hebrews tells us that Jesus sympathizes with us today in our weakness. And it's telling us suffering's not inherently joyful. Suffering is not some good that we pursue to please God. No, we only accept suffering if it comes from the hand of God. And the fact that he calls it grievous proves here that God cares. God is paying attention. He cares about it deeply. And he is grieved. And this is all the more reason to trust him with that suffering and to trust him with that difficulty. D, Peter tells us that suffering is plentiful. Notice in verse 6, he says that they're grieved by what? By various trials. Now, 
this once again encompasses a, a whole range of possible troubles. The, the term can literally be translated here, many colored trials. And this is a reminder to us that whether our trial is a, a minor anxiety or it's a, a grave, grave difficulty, God's going to use it as a tool in our lives. Whether it comes from our own sin or whether it comes from the brokenness of this world, don't forget 1 verse 3. God will multiply his grace and he will multiply his peace to you. Turn back to 1 Peter 4, verse 10, and I want to show us an observation about God's grace because it's here in 4.10 that we learn that God's grace is as varied and colored and manifold as are our sufferings and trials. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So God's grace is fit for your suffering. There are as many facets to divine grace as there are to your trials. God is more sufficient than all of our trouble. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is sufficient for all of your trouble? The early church is said to have been birthed through the fires of persecution. And so for several generations after Peter wrote this letter, the church found themselves under more and more increasing hostility and persecution, especially from the Roman Empire. And as we turn over into the first century, one great example of suffering faithfully was a bishop named Polycarp. Polycarp served in the same region that these believers suffered in a place called Smyrna. And Polycarp was known to be a disciple of John the Apostle. He was discipled by John the Apostle. And when he was older in life, the empire called Polycarp to recant his faith and to curse Christ. And when he was called to do this, he said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I've served him 86 years. He's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme him? When he realized that he was going to be martyred for his faith, he simply replied, the will of God be done. How many of us can look at our sufferings and trials and say with Polycarp, the will of God be done? And then if that's not good enough, when the day came for him to be burned at the stake and they took him to the stake and they were going to bind his hands and nail his hands to the pyre there, he said, don't do it. He said to them, let me be as I am. He that granted me to endure the fire will also grant me to remain at the pyre without being secured with nails. His trust and confidence in God was extraordinary. And there is report after report, after report like this, of how Christians in the early church suffered willingly and gladly as a testimony to their faith in Jesus. Those who gave their lives as martyrs, Revelation 12, verse 11 says, that they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives until death. Deaths like polycarps were not a defeat. Deaths like polycarps were a final triumph. Now, there's no doubt that in this room, our life stories are painted with a brightly 
and darkly colored palette of pain and difficulty. No doubt there are all degrees of suffering present in this room today. And so whether your affliction is light or it's grievous, we have reason to say with Polycarp, I will not blaspheme my king who has done me no wrong. I will serve him faithfully. And as Peter says to us in verse 3, I will instead praise him. A life that suffers for God is worth it. We want to say to our trials, the will of God be done. I will rejoice in it. He will grant me to remain at the pyre unmoved. And he will multiply his grace. And he will multiply his peace to me. I'm going to entrust my soul to him. Finally, Peter teaches E, suffering is proving. Verse 7 says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a purpose clause here in verse 7. Notice the so that. And it answers this question, why is it God's plan for Christians to suffer? Well, the purpose, the reason he uses suffering as a tool is to perfect and to prove our faith. You might say that suffering is the crucible of faith. It draws out what is true and it burns out what is not worthy. And so a true faith it survives the heat, and it comes out on the other side, a proven faith. And this is a proven faith that is much more valuable than all the gold on this earth. And why is it more valuable? Because it's going to endure. The gold's going to perish. At the judgment, the gold's going to be burned up. But at the judgment, that believer is going to be found worthy because their faith is genuine, and it's going to endure to the end. And proven faith is not only going to endure, it's going to receive a great reward. Look at the second half of verse 7. It says, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus returns and he comes to bring the kingdom of heaven, he's going to say to all of us who have endured, all of us who have entrusted our souls to God, He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. And then he'll say those glorious words. Enter into the joy of your master. Praise God. There's one more reality about suffering that Peter teaches us. F. And it says, suffering does not negate pleasure. This is the biggest takeaway I want us to have today, that suffering does not negate pleasure. Remember, recall at the beginning of verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you are suffering. So how do we rejoice when, frankly, most of us are tempted to be angry at God for the difficulty that's in our lives? Most of us, deep in our hearts, find ourselves tempted to say, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. Well, what we need to do and what Peter wants us to do is contrast the temporary nature of our suffering with the greatness of our eternal reward. The brokenness of this world, 
the suffering and difficulty in this world, it cannot and it should not negate our joy in God. Look again at 1 Peter 4, verse 13. And it gives us an important perspective on why we can have joy in our suffering. This is a, a marvelous truth. It says, but rejoice, 4.13. But rejoice, so here's that word again, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So whether it's a stubbed toe or it's cancer, or it's martyrdom. We can rejoice that we share in Christ's sufferings. This truth is a reminder that God's going to use our sufferings to a great and mighty end, to a great and mighty goal. He's going to use our sufferings to, to drive out the sin and to drive out the bitter dross that's in our lives. He's going to use suffering to make us like Jesus. Just as he used Jesus' suffering to accomplish a great end, so he will not waste one moment of our difficulty. Think about that. He won't waste one moment of our difficulty. He is aiming to give us a more persistent and a more permanent and eternal joy. Years ago, my dad, for Christmas, had a custom hunting knife made for me. I have it up here with me. And uh, the best part about this knife and getting it for Christmas is that I actually got to go to the knife maker shop. He just had it in a shed in his backyard and help him make this knife. Uh, when we got there, he had formed it into a bar and, you know, melded multiple types of metal together and banged them together. And it was time to, to put it in the kiln. And we put it in that kiln for about 30, 45 minutes. It was 1,500 degrees in there. That thing was glowing lava hot and red. And uh, we pulled it out, and he, he took it. And as soon as he pulled it out, he dipped it in what I, I think is oil. Some of y'all might be knife makers and know what's happening here. But he dipped it in there to, to firm up the metal, to kind of fix the metal uh, the way it was and to make it strong. And then he took that bar, and he took a saw, and he, he cut the shape of this knife out. And then he took it up to the band, uh, what do you call it? Uh, bandsaw, thank you, whoever just helped me. Thank you. Uh, losing my mind here. Okay, and, and, and he, he brought it down to this sharp, sharp blade. But then he did the most surprising thing. I wish y'all could see this, but on the top here are the letters B-A-T-T-E-N, Batten. Batten is his last name. And when he did that, I thought, dude, I want my name on there. Okay, why are you putting your name on there? Well, why did he put his name on this beautiful knife? Because he wanted everyone to know that he had made the knife. God is like this knife maker. He's at work in your trials, shaping you, informing you. God is burning a faith into you that is more genuine and more lasting and more precious than gold. And we need to carefully note that nothing can break this God-wrought, heat-tested faith. When God is done, he's going to stamp his names onto our forehead. He's going to stamp the name of God. It's going to carry this phrase, forged by God. And we need to remember that in his grand purposes, he is using our suffering to make us strong and perfect, to make our faith genuine. And so we can praise God for this. And we can rejoice in this future salvation no matter what we are suffering today. Entrusting ourselves to him that he will finish the work that he has begun in us.
We all need to hear the admonition from Hebrews 10, verse 35. It says, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. All too often we let the difficulty of this world steal away our joy in God and steal away our praise of God. And the problem is, is that we often just operate on what I'd call a personal happiness paradigm. And we need to realize this is not the paradigm that God operates in. He allows suffering into our lives because God's operating off a different paradigm. He's operating off a different priority. We might call it God's holiness paradigm. He wants to make us like Jesus. We are elect exiles. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're passing through. And so he's going to use suffering to make sure that when the kingdom comes, we're ready for it and we are fit for it. Fit to truly belong forever. In a minute, we'll sing together. When I fear, my faith will fail. Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold me fast. May we sing these joys with a renewed confidence and may we live these words with a renewed joy. A life that honors God and a life that suffers for God is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we do give you praise for our secure salvation. We praise you for setting your love on us. We praise you for giving us new hearts, for granting to us through Jesus a living hope. We pray, Lord, that you will strengthen us, that you will guard our faith, that you will help us to endure, to not throw away our confidence, that you will help us to look to the reward. Cause us to see and to trust your unseen hand at work, a hand that's perfecting and preparing us for life with you in the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to that day when we will be with Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.